We have for the last two weeks stepped out of Colossians chapter 1. Tonight we're going to step right back into it. So if you would turn to Colossians 1. So far we've gotten down through chapter 1 verse 23. And tonight we'll look at just one verse, verse 24. But to set the context for us. We'll read in verses 21 through 24 in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, I ask now that you would be Lord over this time. That you would speak powerfully to us by your word. God, that you would make us willing to follow you no matter the cost. God, that we would boast only in the cross. That as we sung, in the cross would be our glory ever. That tonight we would not glory in our own understanding. That we would not glory in the speaker. That God, as we think about suffering, that we would not glory in thoughts of what we think we may accomplish for you. But that we would glory in what you've accomplished for us through the suffering of your son. So help us now to glory in the Savior and to prepare to suffer for His sake. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1.21 And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless And beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." I don't believe there's any attention-grabbing introduction needed tonight. This sentence, if you are listening and have ears to hear, is shocking enough on its own. I believe it's shocking to the believer and I believe it's shocking to the unbeliever. The average American unbeliever would be shocked tonight simply to hear us discussing suffering. After all, we live in the most affluent culture in the world. We live in the most suffering-free society that's ever been on the face of the earth. So for us merely to talk about suffering tonight may be amazing to the person who's never read the Bible or understood its meaning. But I also think that believers might be shocked by what Paul says in verse 24. Some of us may be shocked to hear Paul say that he rejoices in his sufferings. That's a shocking thing if we haven't thought deeply about what the Bible teaches. In fact, many of our prayer meetings are largely actually sympathy meetings where we're praying for the alleviation of suffering, not for God to help us to rejoice in our suffering. Increasingly, I don't think that's the case at Pleasant Ridge Baptist, and I'm thankful for that. But on a large scale, Christians are praying and presenting theologies that say, let's get as far away from suffering as we can. 
And that's not the message of this verse at all. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. So that's shocking. And thirdly, all of us should be taken aback when we hear Paul speaking of himself filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How could anything be lacking in Christ's afflictions, we ought to ask. And we'll cover that and think about that in a moment. But I just begin by saying that there's no doubt in my mind that if you have a pulse tonight, and if you listen to what verse 24 said, that this is an interesting topic and an interesting verse. I believe it's one of the most potent verses in the Bible. And it's especially needed in our day where suffering is avoided at all costs and where voluntary suffering, which is what Paul is speaking of here, is actually thought by our culture to be insanity. We need to hear from a man who says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And so tonight we're going to spend our entire time together mulling over just one verse, Colossians 1.24, and asking five questions of it. So the first question is a simple question. How did Paul suffer? Well, the short answer is very intensely. How did Paul suffer? He suffered intensely. Notice the phrase, in my flesh. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, and so on. In my flesh I suffer, says Paul. So Paul is not simply talking about a stressful day at the office. He's not simply talking about the air conditioner in his car going out. He's not talking about being given extra homework, though those things may, in their seasons, be intensely difficult. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering in his flesh. He's talking about intense physical and possibly emotional and mental strain that he has endured. Much of it brought about because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know more about how he suffered? You can look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28, where he writes this. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Now, if we turned this list into a checklist for ourselves, most of us would have very few boxes clicked off here. Most of us haven't suffered nearly as intensely as Paul had. He suffered from bodily pain. He suffered from fear of violence that might have and sometimes was done against him. He suffered from deprivation of his most basic physical needs. He suffered from mental anguish, the concern for all the churches. And in all these things, he says, I rejoice. I rejoice to have spent a day and a night in the sea. I rejoice that I received 39 lashes five times from the Jews. I rejoice to be beaten with rods. I rejoice to be in danger from robbers and in danger from false brethren. I rejoice in my sufferings. Which brings me to the second question. 
Why did Paul rejoice? He suffered intensely and he rejoiced. Why? Was he just a glutton for punishment? Was he crazy? Was he a masochistic, insane person? I don't think so. Why did Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Well, he had lots of good biblical reasons. And I want to share some of those that he may have been thinking about when he wrote Colossians 1.24. The first is this. Suffering is God's stamp of approval. Particularly, suffering for the sake of the gospel is God's stamp of approval. Acts 5.40-42 After calling the apostles in, they, meaning the council, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They considered it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. These apostles did. Paul jumped right in with them. I consider it a privilege to suffer because it's God's stamp of approval. God has considered me worthy. I heard a story about a Ukrainian missionary this past week. She moved to the far east of Russia where it's illegal to distribute Christian literature. She moved there so that she might distribute Christian literature. She's been in jail and been under other types of suffering. Someone asked her about her suffering. She said, every time I suffer for the sake of the gospel, I figure I must be doing something right. God is giving me a stamp of approval when I suffer. Letting me know that my work is taking effect, that my work is worthwhile. Suffering can be rejoiced in because it is God's stamp of approval on our ministries and on our Christian lives. Secondly, Paul rejoiced in suffering because he knew that suffering brings about from God special rewards for those who suffer for the gospel. Let me rephrase that. God reserves special rewards for those who suffer for the gospel. Matthew 5, 10 and 12, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see what Jesus is saying? This is in the list of the Beatitudes. And there are lots of blessings, including the blessing of heaven for those who follow Christ. But here he's saying there is a great, a special reward in heaven for those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we rejoice because we're laying up great treasures in heaven. Paul also may have rejoiced in his suffering because he knew that suffering helps produce spiritual maturity. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You want to be the kind of Christian who is so mature that it could be said of you, she's lacking in nothing. He's lacking in nothing. Well, James says it happens as we face various trials. And as our faith is tested. Endurance, completion, becoming so that you lack in nothing 
comes about through suffering. And therefore, when we suffer, we are learning to rely on God in ways that we never would otherwise. So we rejoice. Paul also rejoiced in suffering because he knew that suffering helps us look forward to heaven. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. He says, if you suffer now, that's good because when Jesus comes back and reveals His glory, you will be able to rejoice even greater than you rejoice now. You will rejoice with exaltation. Why is that? Well, because when you suffer, whether it's suffering for the gospel or just suffering with cancer or some other mental suffering, emotional suffering, when you suffer, it helps you look forward to heaven. If life on earth is suffering, then heaven seems even greater. But if life on earth is easy, then who looks forward to heaven? That's why the people around us all in the culture, they don't think about heaven because they've got life easy. That's why we often don't think about heaven. We've got life too easy. But when we suffer, heaven becomes a lot more real and much more anticipated. And so we should rejoice that God has helped us to look forward to heaven through our suffering. Finally, I think the main reason Paul rejoiced in his suffering is because he knew that suffering speeds up the spread of the gospel. John 12:24, Jesus said, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it suffers, in other words, it bears much fruit. This is primarily what Paul has in mind in verse 24. He was glad to suffer because he knew his suffering was bearing fruit in the spread of the gospel. That's why he says that he suffered for your sake. And that he did his share on behalf of his body, which is the church. He knew that his suffering through the preaching of the gospel and for the preaching of the gospel was actually growing the church. A suffering church is almost always a growing church. You read the story of Christianity for 2,000 years, you find that the times when the church grew the most, both spiritually and numerically, were times where it faced intense suffering. Sometimes the suffering of a plague, sometimes the suffering of a Roman emperor cutting Christians' heads off left and right, sometimes other kinds of suffering. But a suffering church is almost always a growing church. And that makes sense if you think about what we've just said about suffering and why it's helpful and why we should rejoice in it. It makes sense. Think about it. When you suffer, it makes you look forward to heaven. And when you look forward to heaven, you start to realize that lots of people around you aren't going to heaven. And your prayers become more urgent. And your evangelism becomes more urgent. And people begin to stream into the kingdom when our prayers and our evangelism actually become urgent. That will never happen as intensely as when we suffer. We are never so urgent to pray and never so urgent to share the gospel as in times of suffering where we are looking ourselves to heaven and wanting others to be there with us. We also said from James 1 that suffering produces spiritual maturity and spiritual maturity is attractive to the lost. If a church is growing 
spiritually, if the people are loving one another and being changed into the image of Christ, the world will notice. And the times when we are most changed into the image of Christ, the times when we most learn to love, most learn to walk with the Lord are the times that are most difficult in our lives. And so a suffering church is a spiritually maturing church and that's attractive to the world. And again, the numbers increase because of the suffering. And here in Colossians 1, Paul speaks of joy in suffering. If a Christian suffers, whether it be for the sake of the gospel or whether it be just suffering in general that comes upon us all, if a Christian suffers and he is able to rejoice in suffering and to maintain his faith in suffering, then there is undeniable evidence for the onlooking world that Christianity is real. That there is something more to this life than simply living and dying, as the song says. Contrast this suffering church that Paul is describing in his own body and in his own life. Contrast that with our culture. Suffering church is urgent about evangelism because it's looking forward to heaven. Our culture has to push evangelism. The churches in our culture have to program evangelism into a certain night of the week or to a certain event or a certain activity because we're not all that urgent about eternity because we're not suffering. The suffering church is spiritually mature and therefore outsiders are attracted simply by the lives of the Christians in their community. But in our culture, spiritual maturity is the exception rather than the rule. Look around tonight. 30 people here, 85 on Sunday. That's not a black and white divider between who's spiritually mature and who's not, but it's a good gauge, isn't it? Spiritual maturity is the exception in this culture rather than the rule. So churches unable to attract people with their lifestyles actually have to now attract people with hip music and drama or with cutting-edge technology or with coffee and donuts before the service or with cool children's programs. Lots of things that people will be excited about because they're not all excited about how we live. We're not all that different from them. A suffering church doesn't have to argue for the authenticity of the Bible or the authenticity of the faith. They just prove it by walking through suffering and rejoicing and maintaining their faith. We have to argue for the authority of the Bible. We have to argue for the authenticity of Christianity. We have to write books and produce programs to try to convince people that Jesus is real. One of the reasons why we have to do that is because we don't have a fiery furnace in which we may prove it. So, I conclude with Paul, that we, like he, could use some good old-fashioned suffering. That sounds strange to you. I want you to hear the story of a Chinese pastor that Mark told me. Maybe he's told some of you as well. A Chinese pastor was encountering, encountering an American Christian. The American Christian, hearing the stories of the suffering of the Chinese church, said to this pastor, Pastor, I want you to know that our church prays all the time that the Lord would ease and remove your suffering. The Chinese pastor looked him in the eye and said, Why would you pray that? 
Why would you ask God to ease our suffering? Why wouldn't you rather pray that God would help us bear up under our suffering and rejoice in our suffering? Because you see, that Chinese pastor knew what we need to learn, namely that a suffering church is the church that grows. Despite the fact that there are lots of big churches in America and some churches seem to be growing, the statistics show that over the last 20 years or so, there's been no increase whatsoever in church attendance in this country. People are going to one church, but they're just leaving and going from another place. But in China, the number of Christians is increasing exponentially, year by year by year. A suffering church is a growing church. So he says, don't pray that we won't suffer. Pray that we'll rejoice in our suffering so that the world will see and be attracted. So, how did Paul suffer? He suffered very intensely in his flesh. Why did he rejoice in his suffering? Lots of reasons. The main reason is because he knew that a suffering church is almost always a growing church. Suffering speeds up the spread of the gospel. The third question what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Is it not written that there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved in Acts 4.12? How could anyone else need to suffer and add to what Christ did? Did not Jesus Himself say, It is finished. You read the New Testament, you find there's absolutely nothing lacking in the atoning work of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing that we must add and there's nothing that we can add to the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. So where does Paul get off saying that he himself is actually filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? How can anything be lacking? Paul better have a good explanation to say something like that. And he does. The explanation is this. Though there was nothing lacking in the atoning work of Christ, it is finished. What was lacking was a display of that work to the world through the lips and lives of the church. Paul argues in Romans 10 that no one will ever hear the message of the cross without a preacher. The cross in the work that Jesus did, is finished. Everything that needed to be done was done. But the cross won't preach itself. The cross must be preached through the lips and lives of the church. And so there is something lacking. But he doesn't say that preaching is lacking. He says that suffering is lacking. That there's more suffering to be done. And so what we must say then is that this display of the cross to the world through the lips and the lives of the church must come through a suffering church. What is lacking in verse 24 then is the display of the cross to the world through the lips and lives of a suffering church. The body of Christ, the church, proclaims the gospel best when it looks like the bleeding, suffering, dying, physical body of Christ. Say that again. The body of Christ, which is the church, proclaims the gospel best when it looks like the bleeding, suffering, dying, physical body of Christ. Verse 24 is telling us that God designed it that way. 
Verse 24 is telling us that when Jesus died, the suffering that needed to be done was not completed. There was more suffering to be done by the body of Christ. The church. More suffering has to be done if the gospel is to get to the ends of the earth. If we're going to get the gospel to Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or Iraq, more suffering must be done. And it will be done by the church in order to get the gospel out. So what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is nothing about His atoning work. But what's lacking is the church to come in behind Christ and to suffer themselves as they proclaim His suffering to the world. God has willed that the message of His suffering servant, capital S, be transmitted through the lips of suffering servants, little s. God has willed that the message of His suffering servant be transmitted through the lips of suffering servants. Not through politically powerful, culturally savvy, high energy salesmen. God doesn't need people like me. Not that I'm a politically powerful, culturally savvy, high energy salesman at all. But God doesn't need someone to stand here and proclaim the gospel. He doesn't need that, but He's chosen to use men and women to bring the gospel to their neighbors and to bring the gospel to the nations. And we do it best when we're suffering. We do it best when we're suffering. We don't suffer very much in this country, do we? That's one reason why in the United States we can at the same time be the second most church-going country in the world behind the Republic of Ireland and yet be among the most godless, lawless cultures in the history of planet Earth. Church-going, yet godless. The reason why is because the Gospel message is many times presented to us by salesmen. And not by sufferers. And therefore it only goes skin deep. Because the gospel is so often presented with the same methods that are used when we're purchasing a new suit. And you know that if you have a new suit or ladies a new outfit, that you put it on when the occasion fits it and then you take it off when the occasion doesn't seem to fit it. We do the same thing with our Christianity in this culture. If the occasion seems to fit Christianity and Christian behavior, we can put it on. But if the occasion doesn't seem to fit, then we can just as easily take our Christianity off. We've been sold the gospel by salesmen instead of convinced of the gospel by sufferers. And therefore, it is dispensable to us. So I say again, God has willed that the message of His suffering servant be transmitted best through the lips and lives of suffering servants. The fourth question then is, why might God want it that way? Why does God want His message to be transmitted best through suffering Christians, through a suffering church? Why does it work best that way? Well, number one, because our suffering is a visible demonstration of what Jesus suffered on the cross. If you suffer for Christ's sake, 
It gives lost people a tiny little picture of what Christ endured for their sakes. That's why Jesus admonishes us in Luke 9 that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus wants your life to be a model of his life for the onlooking world. Jesus wants you to carry a cross so that when the onlooking world looks at you and you give them the message of the cross, they have something to compare it to. Don't you know that when they finally did listen to the gospel, the Alca Indians in Ecuador had a wonderful preparation in their hearts for understanding how one person could die for the sake of another? They had already seen it in Christ's servants, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the others. So when these men died and then their wives, family members came in behind and told them about Christ who died for them, that started to make sense. Our suffering is a visible demonstration to the onlooking world of what Jesus did for them. Secondly, our suffering helps gain a hearing for the gospel. If we're suffering for the gospel or just suffering in general and we maintain our joy in God, and we maintain our faith in God, people want to listen. It's easy to tune someone out who's talking this and that, and they've got everything easy. It's easy to turn a preacher off who's wearing the nicest suit in the world and has gold chairs behind him in a beautiful sanctuary. It's easy to say, well, what does he know? He's got life easy. But when... The message comes through someone who has cancer and they still have joy. Or someone who has lost a child and they still have faith. Then people listen. Acts 16.25 is a story like that. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening. Why were they listening? Because it was midnight. These men were in a jail. These men were suffering intensely. And they were still praising the Lord. When I was in seminary, there was a man named David Miller who came to preach each year. And David Miller was paralyzed from his neck down. There wasn't a lot of activity that he could do on the stage to get our attention. We just listened to him as he sat in a chair and spoke. He had to memorize every Bible passage that he ever quoted because he couldn't turn the pages of his Bible because his hands wouldn't move. But he preached and he loved the Lord and his faith was real. And I wanted to listen to him because here's a man who has been through something that I've never thought about going through and he's still rejoicing. I want to hear from someone like that. Our suffering gains a hearing for the Gospel. Number three, our suffering helps us become compassionate towards people. We're still answering the question, why did God want the message to be transmitted best through a suffering church? Because a suffering church is compassionate towards people. The latest issue of Discipleship Journal that's right out in the hallway, the title, of, uh, the title on the cover page is, Why Are Christians So Intolerant? Now, I haven't read the magazine, so I don't know the answers that they give. I could think of some good answers why Christians are intolerant. There are certain things that we should be intolerant about. But I can also think of some bad answers. Why does the world look at Christians and see us as so judgmental and so intolerant so many times? One reason is because we haven't suffered enough yet. And 
Therefore, we aren't as compassionate as we should be. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. In other words, God allows us to suffer so that He can comfort us and so that we can, from that comfort, learn how to comfort other people no matter what they're suffering with. That's amazing. When we suffer, God comforts us and our suffering and God's comfort conspire together to make us compassionate and comforting towards people. So when we struggle with heartache or disease or when we struggle with our own sin, that helps us to become better equipped to show genuine love towards people who struggle with heartache and disease and even their own sin. If we've suffered a little bit, we'll be a lot more tender with those who are going through a divorce. We may call it sin, but we can do it tenderly if we've suffered. If we've suffered, we won't be so quick to point our fingers and say nasty things toward and about homosexuals. We can call it sin, but we can speak the truth in love and compassion. We've suffered, we can comfort those who've experienced the death of a loved one, those who are lonely, those with cancer. Suffering makes us compassionate. And that makes for a good gospel preacher or a good gospel sharer, someone who's compassionate. Fourthly, why does God want His message to be transmitted best through a suffering church because suffering helps us rely on God and not on ourselves or our methods of spreading the gospel. Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Paul writing again here. He says, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. We wanted to die. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Paul says God brought us to the brink of death to teach us not to trust ourselves, but to trust God who can get us through death by raising us from the dead. The Christian life were always easy. If there were never any bends in the road, if there were never any sticker bushes to fight through, if there were never any swamps to wade across, we would begin to coast We'd think we were on easy street. And worse than that, we would begin to congratulate ourselves instead of crying out to God to be merciful to us. But suffering of all sorts comes along, whether it's the waywardness of a child or the diagnosis of cancer or the criticism of a friend that you try to share the gospel with. Those things come along to teach us not to rely on ourselves. To remind us that we don't have it all figured out. And to help us remember that we must rely on God who can do anything, even raise the dead. God intends for His message, the message of His suffering servant, to be transmitted best through suffering servants. We are much better sharers of the gospel and examples of the gospel if we've suffered Fifth question. This is where the rubber meets the road. What does all this mean for us? If our suffering 
completes Christ's afflictions, and if our suffering is necessary to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if we spread it best when we're suffering, how do we apply that to our lives? I don't think Paul's advice would be that we all run out and throw ourselves in front of a train so that we'll lose a leg and suffer intensely and now be able to share the gospel better. I don't think he's saying, go out and look for trouble. But he is saying about himself, I do my share. I do my share in filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So the question is, how do we do our share? How do we do our share? How do we join Paul in intentionally, willingly suffering for the sake of the gospel and rejoicing in our sufferings, whether they are for the sake of the gospel or just disease or heartache? How do we join Paul in this rejoicing? Let me give you just a few practical pointers and we're through. Number one, this is really important. Don't be so quick to thank God for health and safety. Don't be so quick to thank God for health and for safety. Almost every time a church gathers, someone prays something like this. Lord, we just thank you that we're here today and that we can gather in this place and that we live in a free country and that we can worship without fear. Wonderful. But I hear that more than I hear, God, we are enemies of yours. We were engaged in evil deeds. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind. And now you've reconciled us in Jesus' fleshly body through death. We don't deserve to be in this building in this free country. We deserve to be squashed by your judgment. And yet you've been merciful. You've made us free indeed. That's a, a lot more surprising thing, isn't it? Not that we're free to gather, but that we're free to actually gather and worship God through what Jesus has done. That's not in my notes. I'm just digressing. But, but let me say, thank God that you're free in Christ, whether you're free as an American or not. But I say again, don't be so quick to thank God for health and safety. Thank God for those things. Yes, but remember that the gospel doesn't spread nearly so quickly in places like America as it does in places like China where they're not healthy or safe at all. Secondly, don't despise your sufferings, but make the most of them. When you suffer the general sufferings of life or whether you suffer for the sake of the gospel, don't despise that, but make the most of that. Let your sufferings drive you to rely upon God. Let your sufferings teach you to be compassionate towards people. Charles Spurgeon, who suffered physically more than most of us have, said this, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. Isn't that amazing? God's Suffering sent into our lives is meant for our good. It is a necessary and a loving gift from the Lord. And we need to accept it that way. Thirdly, know that suffering is coming to this country. Suffering is coming to the United States. 
you look around, you can see very clearly that Christianity in the media and just around the lunch table at work is more and more portrayed as a threat to American society. Someone runs for office and they're a Christian, they're immediately suspicious. Student writes a paper about religion, it's wonderful as long as it doesn't talk about the exclusive claims of Jesus. More and more Christianity is portrayed as a threat to American society. And let me just interject here that Christianity is a threat to American society. American society is godless. And we're presenting God to the people in Christ. So of course we're a threat to American society. That's what we want to be. Christianity is a threat to any society and every society because Jesus is coming and saying, I'm king. You have a president? Yes. Another country has a king. Another one has a prime minister and a parliament. I'm king. Of course we're a threat. And because we are, because Jesus is, a day will come in which certain Christian principles will become illegal. Certain things that we teach and practice in this church will become illegal. And harassment of people like us will become acceptable and overlooked and possibly even legalized. That's coming. So know that. Fourthly, how do we do our part? How do we do our share in suffering? Well, this is an overflow of number three, really. Prepare your children and your grandchildren to suffer. Some of you will not live to see the day when suffering is intense and legalized for Christians in this country. What a shame it would be if our children and our grandchildren aren't prepared because we spoiled them. We must prepare our children and grandchildren to suffer. It's not simply about not spoiling them, although that's imperative. But we need to actually actively train them and prepare them for suffering. And I'll give you just a few ideas that came to me as I studied. The first is to be honest with your kids that suffering is real and suffering is expected for Christians. Each day when Toby and Andrew and Julia and I read our Bible together, we, we're going through with them in this picture Bible. And there are two stories in a row. The story of Stephen being martyred for his faith and the story of Saul or Paul and Silas in prison. And in both stories, there are pictures of all three of these characters with big purple bruises on their arms. And we were reading those stories recently. And Julia very quickly noticed the bruises on the arms of Stephen and Paul and Silas. Daddy, why, are they have, why do they have bruises? Well, Julia, they have bruises because they were following after Jesus. And if we follow after Jesus, that's a lot of times what will happen to us. People won't like us and they may hurt us. She said, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to follow Jesus. Don't mishear me. I'm not glad that she said she didn't want to follow Jesus, but I'm glad that she's counting the cost. I'm glad that she understands from age two that Christianity means suffering. Be honest with your kids about that so that they won't be fooled, so that they won't have a halfway Christianity that will fade when the suffering comes. Secondly, teach your children about missionary martyrs. Teach them about the Jim Elliots and the Lottie Moons and the Adoniram Judsons and the William Careys and the John Pattons of the world. 
Teach them about men like Graham Staines, who just a few years ago lost his life in India for the sake of the gospel. Let those kinds of characters be their heroes instead of the kind that I grew up with. I grew up hero-worshipping people like Chris Sabo or Daryl Strawberry, Magic Johnson. Some of those people that we, these athletes that we admire, movie stars, musicians that we admire may be wonderful people. But what a testimony it would be if our children would get excited about the stories of the martyrs. If our children would say, I want to be like Jim Elliott, not I want to be like Chris Sabo. Teach them that. Son, we would be so thrilled to see you go to the mission field. And though it would tear our hearts to pieces, we would be honored if God blessed you to suffer. For the name of Christ. That's a hero. Teach them that. Teach them, son, we named you after Adoniram Judson because we want you to be like this man who went to Burma and suffered so intensely because he loved Jesus so much. The third idea is very simply to teach your children to love and identify with the poor and the suffering. Toby was a teenager. Her dad, instead of taking them to Hawaii or um, to some other fun vacation spot, took his family to Ecuador to spend a week among the poor and the unprivileged. I don't think there's anything wrong with Hawaii or those other kinds of places. They've done that too. But he took them one year to Ecuador to show them that life in America isn't normal life and that you don't have to have all that we have in order to be happy and to serve the Lord. We have for the last two weeks stepped out of Colossians chapter 1. Tonight we're going to step right back into it. So if you would turn to Colossians 1. So far we've gotten down through chapter 1 verse 23. And tonight we'll look at just one verse, verse 24. But to set the context for us, we'll read in verses 21 through 24 in just a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, I ask now that you would be Lord over this time. That you would speak powerfully to us by your word. God, that you would make us willing to follow you no matter the cost. God, that we would boast only in the cross. That as we sung, in the cross would be our glory ever. That tonight we would not glory in our own understanding. That we would not glory in the speaker. That God, as we think about suffering, that we would not glory in thoughts of what we think we may accomplish for you. But that we would glory in what you've accomplished for us through the suffering of your son. So help us now to glory in the Savior and to prepare to suffer for His sake. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1.21 And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death 
in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I don't believe there's any attention-grabbing introduction needed tonight. This sentence, if you are listening and have ears to hear, is shocking enough on its own. I believe it's shocking to the believer and I believe it's shocking to the unbeliever. The average American unbeliever would be shocked tonight simply to hear us discussing suffering. After all, we live in the most affluent culture in the world. We live in the most suffering-free society that's ever been on the face of the earth. So for us merely to talk about suffering tonight may be amazing to the person who has never read the Bible or understood its meaning. But I also think that believers might be shocked by what Paul says in verse 24. Some of us may be shocked to hear Paul say that he rejoices in his sufferings. That's a shocking thing if we haven't thought deeply about what the Bible teaches. In fact, many of our prayer meetings are largely actually sympathy meetings where we're praying for the alleviation of suffering, not for God to help us to rejoice in our suffering. Increasingly, I don't think that's the case at Pleasant Ridge Baptist, and I'm thankful for that. But on a large scale, Christians are praying and presenting theologies that say, let's get as far away from suffering as we can. And that's not the message of this verse at all. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. So that's shocking. And thirdly, 